Now, Wes, I know that uh, that you maybe not home automation, so to speak, but you have found a way to do a lot of little things with uh, with free and open source technology, right? Like the like the open source Plex alternative. Are you familiar with anything that you might not think off the bat could be open so- or could be a home automation, but in fact could be? What do you mean? Say say that again. So uh, I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily consider uh, you know Plex to be part of a home automation thing, but I would because it goes into it goes into the home theater, goes into the living room, goes into the master bedroom, wherever, um, and then provides essentially automated media, right? I can access my media on demand. I would consider that part of my automation system. I'm wondering if you know of any other, if you have any other suggestions or any other ideas or anything else that you've tried like that, um, that one could use to free and open sourcely automate one's home. Well, yeah, well, one I was just looking at is a, um, I know many people frown on it, but uh, frequently I'm faced with routers that use UPnP. Yes. Um, and, you know, some applications are UPnP and where, and they will automatically forward the ports. Uh-huh. Um, but some are not. And sometimes, you know, maybe you're visiting a family member or who, who may not even know the admin password to their router. Uh, you're in a situation where you don't have the freedom to open ports willy nilly as you see fit. Um, right. And for that, I found a nice little UNP, UPMPC, it's called, or UPMPD. They have a daemon and a client. And it lets mm-hmm. you to interact with any UPMP um, compliant router to specify ports to forward or delete port forwards as you want. So you can customize it for whatever application you're using. That's awesome. See, I do as a as a network security guy, I do have some reservations about using UPnP. You know, and I I do as well. But um, sometimes you're on a network where it's it's already enabled, and you just have to work with it. Um, you know, if you're yeah. So so I've I've found it useful there. I personally don't use it at home, but and it and it sure is convenient, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's awesome. Uh, you know, and they also have they have like a the the project that's doing it. They have a user space implementation. A lot of the BSD TCP IP stack. Uh, and uh-huh. so they, they also use that to provide the daemon. So if you did want to use UPnP and you didn't have a device that used it, you can use their daemon protocol to to run it yourself if you'd like to have it stick it on your PFSense box or any anything else. Why you would do that, I don't know, but uh, you can. That's the beauty of free and open source. Why uh, Why did you say that you think that some people frown on it? Is it just the UPnP aspect? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think a lot of people, and I know certainly Alan's talked about it, but just that... You know, the idea of people opening ports in your firewall without your express permission, or especially apps, maybe you're running proprietary applications uh, that you don't, you know, you don't really have a handle on what it is they're sending. Right. Uh, so that, that's a big problem that I see, you know, and that's why I don't use it on my own home network. But uh, I know like in my parents' house, they have a ISP provided router that is UPnP and client. And well, I do have their, you know, admin password. It, sometimes it's just easier if you're not, you know, I'm not going to be there for a long time. I don't need to leave a hole in their firewall. I can just open it up while I'm there. Sure. Well, that 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 does sound really cool. I'll have to check that out. Maybe we can get a link in the show notes. And yes, I can absolutely. Go check that out. Have you heard of icebergs.io? I was just checking that out this morning, actually. Really? So I had not heard of it before, but apparently icebergs.io, um, Ubuntu with an XFCE, gives a highly productive desktop experience in the browser with a quick and responsive on an all-modern internet connection. Um, now, they've actually optimized for touch devices. So you can run it on your phone, for example, and you can access um, what it, what essentially is a mobile operating system through a web browser. Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I um, I just tried out the free account. They give you two compute hours a month. Um, okay. And you it also won't save. So anytime you're done with it, whenever you turn it off, it's gone. Uh, whereas if you upgrade to a paid plan, then they'll be persistent. Um, now, 
how do they calculate a compute hour? You know, I'm not sure. I haven't I haven't looked into that yet, uh, but that will be the sticking point because while they do give you the first paid plan, I think is like $10 a month and they give you yeah. two instances, uh, but right. you're also limited to compute hours there as well. Tw- 25 of them, if I'm not yes. mistaken, right? Yeah. Yes, I believe so. So I think you can have multiple instances running um, and each of those adds up to your compute hours, but uh, exactly how that gets built, we should we should check that out. Uh, yeah. I was impressed, though. You know, it took a little bit to start up, but once everything was going, it was surprisingly responsive and uh, pretty easy to use. Now, the, um, the, 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 for nine bucks a month, I could see this being really useful. Now, I've, I've actually tried to implement this. I don't know. Have you played with X2Go very much? Yes. Uh, yes, I have. Um, you know, I frequently recommend it to people just because it's so, it's so easy to, to start using and it works, you know, a lot faster than most of the other alternatives. Uh-huh. Um, so yes, so I don't think I would, for the price point of icebergs.io, I'm not, I'm not sure it's there for me yet. Um, oh, uh, really? Well, that depends. That depends on how willing you are to roll your own solution. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, cause if you, if you already have the skills or the infrastructure to set up uh, an X2Go server with an environment of your choosing, uh, provided you have enough bandwidth, um, mm-hmm. then I, th- that would probably be my preferred solution. But I am intrigued by, by the idea of desktop Linux in the browser you know, at, at a whim, kind of. You know, so there are a couple of things that stand out to me. One is, if you go with the service type solution, you are essentially cloudifying your existence, and in doing so, you're losing control of your data. One of the things I like about my X2Go machine is that it physically sits inside of my office. I can go put my hand on it, and I know where that hard drive is at all times. And there are some additional benefits to having that device physically located in a place I can get to it. For example, I have a little SATA hard drive reader that is plugged into my X2Go machine. And so if I have a, a lot of times I'll have a staff member, they'll say, hey, boss, you know, we're doing XYZ and we're having a problem with it. And, you know, I I can't get this file to open or I can't get this file to do this or I can't get these permissions done on this. And I'll say, well, just take the hard drive and stick it into my my drive reader. And they can put it into the drive reader. And then from wherever I am, I can access that data. And then I can, you know, I can move it over to my laptop so I can work with it locally if I need to, or 90% of the time, 99% of the time I can get my work done actually on the X2Go machine, um, provided I have a decent internet connection. And that is, that's something that no matter how robust and how cool Icebergs becomes, I'll always be missing that, that functionality, right? And so it limits my ability to scale, I think, a little bit. You know, I would I would agree, and I think it ties into a lot of what some of our user base, you know, a lot of the Linux user base has problems with a lot of proprietary software, you know, one, for maybe philosophical reasons, but also just because when you hit the edges of things, you know, when you hit, you try to stretch something to a little bit mm-hmm. different purpose, or you need to customize something on a one-off thing, you're met with boundaries. Whereas if you've, if you've rolled it yourself, you used free open source software, uh, it, time is just the limit for how much you can accomplish. You know, I'm just thinking of it something though that's interesting that it's like it's kind of like a similar option but it's more of a app based thing uh it's called roll app and it's a uh, rollapp.com and basically it, it does a, a server rendering of an application to your web browser and it also works on your phone too so in a way like i've tested it and you can actually like use LibreOffice on your phone through this service wow yeah. Wow, it's actually that it costs like slick. seven seven dollars a month or something, and you get like unlimited usage or whatever. Uh, and it, it, it's impressive. Like it works on your phone, it works on your tablet, it works on your web browser, and it does like all different kinds of apps. Like I think their total count is like two hundred or something. But the I tested with LibreOffice, and it actually is like not the most latest version, but it is like the next latest. 
So like 5.0.1 or something like sure. that. Sure. Sure. So it's, it's, it actually works quite well and they have like custom features built into the app. So like you have like double tap to or two finger tap the phone to lay out a toolbar and all kinds of stuff. Like it's, it's pretty impressive. Can you give us uh, an idea or an example of, of something that you've used with it? I've just used LibreOffice with it so far. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, but actually even that alone, uh, I could see tremendous use, use case for, um, yeah. and it actually know, lot- supports GIMP too. Oh, wow. Really? So you can do image editing and everything. Yeah. Can Can you imagine the practicality of doing that? Can you imagine the practicality <laughs> of like modifying this image, like especially with like a touchscreen device or something? I know people already yeah. complain about GIMP's UI I and mean, now we'll hear no end to it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Well, in this case, you could probably maybe if you had like the, the single window mode is what is necessary for like desktop stuff. But maybe on the phone, the separate windows would be better because you could like full screen on the phone, each of the windows. I don't know. It might be a better solution yeah so when chris was here uh we did some electrical upgrades to the rv um i don't know if uh some of you if you're um if you're your patrons you got the the email from it um and they he actually recorded a video that's pretty cool but essentially what we've tried to do is get everything to run off of 12 volts and um the advantage of that dc 12 volt is that one is he can charge on the solar panel and two is he can actually run all of his equipment then off of those batteries. So he's not reliant upon AC power. Um, I don't know. I, Wes or, or Rotten Corpse, have you guys had any experience with um, self-sufficient powering yourself? Not myself. I have some friends who live on the big island of um, Hawaii, uh, and they're working on setting up a hydroelectric electric system. Um, oh, cool. But before that they were kind of reliant on friends use of electricity to charge a lot of the batteries they had so they'd already converted a lot of their infrastructure to dc um when they started playing around with this hydro uh, so, so it was kind of interesting to see you know they had lots of kind of the same kind of modular setup kind of plugging everything every which way uh with those they had the same kind of connectors you were highlighting on the show really yeah the anderson power poles yeah yeah they were they were showing i didn't remember the name but when you when you showed that on the show, i was like oh those that's exactly what they had going on you know, I don't mean to go fanboyish, but I absolutely love Anderson Power Bowls. If you're not familiar with them, they are genderless, uh, low voltage connectors. And so essentially they'll handle up to like 30 amps. Uh, the small ones, they have bigger ones that'll handle like up to 250 amps, but it's a different, it's a, it's a bigger version of the, of the smaller Anderson Power Bowl. But the 30 amp guys, they, uh, you can put them onto, uh, I've used them on 12 og wire. I've used them on, I think I've used them as high as 10 og wire and as, and as small as 18 og wire. Um, you have to fold the 18 over a little bit and use some solder. But um, the nice thing is they're genderless. So you don't have to decide, is this going to be a power receiving source or a power providing source? You can, you, they can, you can be interchangeable with it. And that's the case when it comes to something like a battery. Sometimes the battery is providing the energy and other times the battery is, uh, is um, receiving the energy from like a charger. Uh, and so it, it offers a tremendous amount of flexibility. And because of the standardization it, it will hopefully the idea is that it will give Chris the freedom to plug things in uh, willy nilly. If he has to make a change on the fly, that becomes, you know, very, very, very easy to do. Now, it's interesting that you say that they're using uh, that they're using hydroelectric um, and that's DC, because if you're you if you start with DC, if you generate DC and then you run it off of DC, you're not losing any energy in a conversion process. Right. Right. Yeah, uh, I think that's what they were going for. You know, uh, once they've got that running They'll almost be self-sufficient, except they, they're still importing a, a large amount of propane for, for a lot of their utilities. But but other than that, they're, they've got their own farm going. Um, it, it's quite the project. Awesome. 
Anything else we want to cover in the pre-show before we get started? Anything? I mean, if you want to go back to the icebergs thing, you could mention that there's OS.js if you wanted to. Tell me about OS.js. It's a JavaScript-based operating system thing. And it's not full-fledged or anything, but it is legitimately ran through the browser, like dependent on the browser. Okay. So and it's, it's, it has got a few, it's got a, it's mostly web app based, but it has other things too. And like, it can run stuff on the back end, and it, uh, you can like put it, uh, you can, you can install it on like a DO droplet or something and have a interesting operating system available at any time. It's not, it's not like X to go or anything, but it's still interesting. See that anything that, anything that I can install on top of a droplet or anything that I can install um, quickly and then access everywhere has has huge appeal to me because I can think of so many practical places of where I could where I could use something like that. Have you tried it? Yeah, I've tried it. I haven't I haven't put it on my own Java, but I've tried their demo and it's it's interesting. It it, it actually has like uh, its own custom UI and everything, and it runs uh, apps pretty fast. I mean, if you have, you have to have a pretty good machine to do it though, um, but it's um. I, all I can say is interesting. It's not practical at all right now, but it is it is fun to play with. You know, the nice thing about having its own UI is I bet it actually runs a little bit more efficiently inside of a web browser than, huh? Oh, yeah. It actually has, like, um, I mean, I can't really describe the UI, but, it had, like, the menu system it uses is similar to, like, a GNOME 2 style. Wow. Do you know what the, the license is on that? I'm pretty sure. Sh- I know it's open source. I'm pretty sure it's GPL'd. That's that's awesome. I uh, I I'll have to take a look at that. There, th- th- my problem is when I run into things that like compete with something that is already working so well, I have a hard time prying myself off of my current solution. So, for example, in this case, X2Go has worked for me so well, and I've been able to get so much done with X2Go that I'm having a really hard time. Uh, I would have a really hard time prying myself away from X2Go to. Uh, to to try something else, even if that something else is better, and and it wouldn't be the first time that I've gone back and decided, oh yeah, actually, uh, uh, you know, X Y Z uh, worked a lot better the second time around. I just didn't know that it existed. Yeah. Okay. So this one doesn't have. It's not GPL. It's a license that technically would be compatible, but it's very limited in the license. It's basically just keep the copyright there, and uh, then whatever else you know, use at your own risk type thing. Uh, but I wouldn't say that this was better than X2Go. I think that X2Go is probably the best uh, solution for someone who wants to roll their own uh, cloud-based servers or desktop, whatever. But I would say that if somebody wants just to kind of run stuff through the web, roll app is definitely worth looking into, especially considering you'd have like uh, LibreOffice on your phone and you could also roll it out to like hundreds of people and have the same version available to all of them. That's pretty awesome. And, you know, the thing is, X2Go, you, I know that there are extensions that you can run inside of Firefox, but primarily it's designed to be run inside of its own native client app. It's not, you know what I mean? It wasn't really designed to run, um, you know, in the browser. So something that is that is designed from the ground up to run in the browser, I, I like, again, I, I would think that would be a little bit more efficient. Maybe have a little bit more pleasant of, a, of an experience to it. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 112 for September 29th, 2015. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux show that's being brought to you today by nothing short of a freaking miracle. 
My name is Noah, and joining me from the Seattle studio is Wes. Hey guys, it's Wes. Pleasure to be here. Now, uh, it's my honor and privilege to step in anytime Chris is off exploring somewhere yonder this week, as it turns out, in Utah, in the Jupiter rover. By the way, did you know that you can get minute-by-minute updates and follow his adventures over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover? Some of you might be wondering what I meant when I said that the show was being brought to you today by America. And the answer actually starts back on Saturday at the meetup. So first of all, huge shout out to North Ranger, who's in our chat room right now, and everyone else that made the meetup on Saturday in Grand Forks uh, following Chris's arrival and then uh, subsequently his departure. We were sitting down, we're having pizza, and we started talking about what the rest of Chris's trip is going to look like. And it is going to be, uh, he's going through Utah. And so we laid out a map, a, a route for him to take, and we were all kind of figuring that out. And when you laid a the cellular connectivity over his uh, planned route, he was not going to have coverage. And if he did have coverage, he would have to drive like 10 hours in between Coda Radio and Linux Unplugged to make both shows work. That sounds fun. Yeah, it sounded great, right? It sounds like a great plan. So Sunday, he, that, that, he figured that out. and He goes, you know, uh, would you mind stepping up and, and helping do the show? And I said, yeah, I would love to. Um, because Linux Unplugged is one of my favorite shows. I, I love the community aspect, and, I, and I'm friends with a lot of the people in the mumble room, so it's kind of fun that instead of just, you know, um, you know, uh, chewing the straw off the air, you know, at, at 2 in the morning, now we can all be on air and have, have uh, productive conversations. Um, but the studio wasn't really set up for that, because uh, when Chris got here, we had reorganized the way the studio was set up to accommodate the, um, the shows that he wanted to do and the way that he wanted to do them. And then additionally, my studio isn't really set up for hosting shows with music coming in and, and all of this other stuff. So I ended up buying some more audio interfaces and some new cables and redid everything Monday um, to make things just more smooth so that we could go on the air and do this today. T- uh, Tuesday, I wake up and my first trouble call is not from a client. It's from my own office. And my staff calls me and they're like, hey, boss, guess what? The internet went out today. And I'm thinking, oh, no. Oh, oh God. this isn't good. Wow. Yeah. No, we're an IT company. We can't not have internet. We have no access to emails. We have no access to our SIP phone system. We have no access to our work order system. We can't get to the call center. I have no idea what's going on in my own company. And, I, and as I'm trying to sort that headache out, it dawns on me, oh, no, I have left this afternoon. So I immediately stop what I'm doing. And I'm like, you guys fix the internet. I have to get stuff ready so I can do up in a couple of hours. So I start, I grab extra mixers and I'm grabbing audio cables and I'm grabbing cables and microphones. And I'm, I have all this stuff in my arms and, I, and I'm running down. And Wes, have you ever done this thing where your arms are full and you start trying to like fish your keys out with your pinky and you like, you don't want to drop anything, but you're, you don't, you, there's no real way to set a, a clump of stuff down every moment, knowing you're going closer and closer yeah. to everything on yes. the ground. Yes. Oh, yes. yes, exactly. So I'm doing that and I finally fish my keys out and I get the car unlocked and then it dawns on me. Where am I going to go? Where, where am I going to go? Because I can't go home. My house is for sale and there's an open house today. And even if there wasn't an open house today, people are looking at the house every couple of hours. And even if that weren't the case, I have two kids, two dogs and one wife, a Learjet taking off is more quiet than my house is. And so I decide I'm going to take over my in-laws house. I'll just, I'll go over there and I'll set up all of my stuff and I'll just, I will do the show from my in-laws house all willy nilly like and kick them out of their house. That seemed like a good idea. Easy peasy. Yeah. (laughs) And thank God it didn't actually come to that. Um, Mid-continent in their infinite wisdom was able to get the problem resolved very quickly, made a call within one hour. They had our internet back up and uh, I'm able to safely do the show from my studio and uh, we seem to have a working internet connection out to Seattle, and so Wes can join me, and thus, this is Linux Unplugged. And we have a cool show, I think, lined up, don't we? Yes, we do. Oh, man, that is quite the story. I, it, 
it's wonderful to be here with you. Now I know all that. Yeah. So I want to start out um, first with a uh, with a little bit of feedback. Um, our first piece of feedback comes in from Mathis, and he writes in with high DPI versus VGA, and he goes, "Hi, Wes and Noah. In three years, I will still have my VGA ports for two reasons: one, VGA will still be a superior connector, and two, CRT monitors that will that I will still be using only have VGA, I think, and RCA." Appreciate and love all your netcasts. Mathis, I wanted to get your take on that. Do you think that VGA is still going to be a thing in uh, in the next five years? Well, we'll see. I didn't I didn't think laptops with uh, less than full HD would be a thing three years ago, but it still is. Uh, so I can see them still having VGA connectors. Um, I can too. You know, and it, it it's a decent form factor. Um, it, it does, you know, it's analog, so it just just works even if it's not you know it doesn't have fancy features you can't really chain it it doesn't you know it doesn't have the the kind of resolution that a lot of us would like to see these days um i imagine that at least some section of the hardware market will still contain vga will i be using it uh, we'll see i th- i think so too I, I i agree with him when he says that vga is a superior connector if only because of the two little knobs on the side oh i love the knobs can- yeah, me too because then you can securely connect it to the freaking computer so it doesn't get ripped out it makes tons of sense um, I don't know why we went away from that. And, you know, the same thing could be said about serial versus USB. Um, the, the, the DB9 connector had little screw things. And like when you attach one of those puppies to the computer, it never crossed your mind if the cable was going to get pulled out or become disconnected. Like that just wasn't a thing. It worked. Yeah, if it was connected and it was tied down, it worked. And you could trust that it was basically as secure as having it on the inside of the computer. Um, unless, of course, somebody like tried to climb up the back of the tower or something. Um you weren't going to break it off. And, and these days, like even before we started the show, I had to restart my machine because my USB connector came unplugged from the, from the computer. So I agree with you that it's, that it's a severe connector. I think that the lack of uh, screen real estate is enough to make me switch. And I think it's going to be enough to make a lot of other people switch. I also find it convenient even just when I'm short on, you know, maybe I don't have, have splitters or uh, I'm in a different situation. And just, just having the VGA, extra VGA port that a lot of computers do have means I can, you know, have an extra monitor that I might not otherwise get without buying a specialty piece of hardware. Very good. Over at reddit.com slash r slash Linux action show, you can submit uh, things of interest for this show or for our big show every week, the Linux action show. Um, Twistex77 writes in and he says, Hi, Chris. I've been a list I've been a Linux tester for more than 10 years, but I've never actually had the possibility to use Linux as my main OS. I have finally done that almost two years ago, and I'm really happy with Ubuntu GNOME. Well, I wanted to let you know that all my electronic devices today use an AC uh, that use an AC have an internal rectifier and a regulator, so they end up using DC. So many so many times, just by- bypassing the rectifier part, you can hook up 12 volt or 24 volt directly from your RV's DC supply. I guess you probably you guys already know that. Anyway, I'm an electrical engineer, and so if you want to know how to use a soldering iron, I could help you bypass those AC devices and use DC when possible. So let me know if you need any help with any electronic related problems. Last but not least, thanks for the great shows. I listen to you guys uh when going to work almost every day well thank you so much for writing in we really appreciate it actually i do have an electrical question for you oh perfect yeah i did yeah that worked out right chris has a compressor gate combo that runs on nine volt ac and i want to get it to preferably uh, eventually i need to get it to 12 volt dc but i can live with uh nine volt dc because i already have a step down transformer from uh, 12 volt dc to nine volt dc you could help me solve that problem that would be a huge help um jupiterbroadcasting.com click on the contact link choose linux unplugged from the drop down menu 
And if you have a solution for that, or you would like to help me come up with a solution for that, that would be amazing. At the moment, that's to my knowledge, that's the only remaining thing that he has in the camper that he has to have on day-to-day production that isn't running on DC. So that'd be really cool if we could get that solved. Um, Wes, have you been following Chris at the, at the tracker? Uh, yes, I have. You know, it's it's a weird little voyeurism, but it's it's very enjoyable just to be able to kind of creep creep along as he adventures across the West. Did you watch him when he arrived into Grand Forks? Yes, I did. It, it was awesome. I uh, I uh, it's it's been kind of funny because the the tracker is actually in the the truck, not in the RV itself. And so when he goes to like the market or whatever else, um, it's kind of funny because like people will come over and like knock on the knock on the door and say, "Oh, hey, how's it going?" Or the, they'll come find us or him, rather. Um, in fact, I had even one of my employees <laughs> took a selfie with the JB Rover. Uh, oh wow, that's awesome! Yeah, he was trying to find me, and I had left my phone at home. So he's like, oh, I'll just use a little rover thing and I'll go find Chris. It was pretty neat. You know, I actually, I was looking at um, at the the equipment that he was using. Chris was showing me in, in detail how that Silver Cloud thing was working. And I actually went over to Amazon and I found a box for 35 bucks that um, kind of does the same thing where they will update your, uh, where they'll update your, your status. But instead of charging like a monthly, like uh, account that you have to put money into in order to get a certain amount of updates... Essentially, you just provide your own uh, GSM card, and then it will update. Isn't that kind of cool? Oh, that sounds really neat. Kind of roll your own service, and as long as you can, as long as you can reach them, they'll give you updates. Exactly. And I'm thinking I could get the cost down on this, so I'm going to have to run this by Chris. But if if someone were to go to Linux.ting.com, and you you, you the the SIM cards right now are on sale for five bucks, so you could buy this SIM card for five bucks, and but you get twenty five dollars of credit, so you could use the rest of the twenty dollar credit to pay for the first month of service. And with Ting, you're only going to pay for what you use. So in my case, what I'm talking about here is I would only be using data. I would just be updating uh, my locations. I wouldn't be using text messages and I wouldn't be making phone calls. And so I'm not going to pay for that service. I'm just going to pay for the data that I'm using. Of course, if you do plan on sending text messages or making phone calls, they're moderately priced. And you, because it's no contract, you can cancel the service at any time without any penalty. So I'd suggest everyone go over to linux.ting.com, pick yourself out something nice and use that $25 we're going to get you for being a listener of the Linux Unplugged show. A huge thanks to Ting for sponsoring the show. And uh, it just goes to show you that the limit of what you can do with those devices is limited only by your imagination. You know, Ting really saved my butt this weekend. I just, I just oh, have really? to say. Tell oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I was working from home there doing some construction in the office. Lots of concrete dust everywhere. Not, nothing we wanted to be a part of. Uh, and, you know, just as, just as my shift was coming to an end, my ISP's connection, of course, decided to fail. Uh, it yep. starts with the letter C. Um, they planned you can that, you know. Yes, I believe that they did. It was just perfectly timed. Um, but thanks to Ting, tethering, you know, it just uses your data. It's included in your plan. You don't have to worry about it. There's no fuss. So I was able to just spin up my LTE connection on my phone, and I was VPN back in in no time. It was it was perfect. It saved my butt, that's for sure. Every time I think that I have found the limit of what I can do with Ting, I end up buying another device. Even when we were out, uh, when we were out doing the meetup, um, I still get questions about that little credit card phone. Have I showed you that, or have you seen it? Oh yeah, that is so cool. I'm thinking about just getting one. It, they seem so handy, and you can just you know just keep it when you need it. And dude, they're thirty freaking dollars. That's you can amazing. Buy a brand new, yeah, you can buy a brand new phone for thirty freaking dollars, and you throw that five dollar SIM card in there, which by the way you won't pay for, um, because Ting's going to give it to you for free by going to Linux. Um, and then you have twenty dollars of service credit, and if you're like me. That paid for that paid for my first month of service. And then if even with my wife 
and me and my son and my dad, who's on, which all of which are on my plan now, I would still probably get a good chunk of that month paid for. Of course, you can just buy a, a device. We're going to run over to blog.documentfoundation.org, and they published an article titled today, headline, Five Years of LibreOffice. LibreOffice was launched as a fork of OpenOffice.org on September 28, 2010, by a tiny group of people representing the community in their capacity of community project leaders. At the time, it was a brave, although necessary decision, because it was rather clear to everyone that OpenOffice.org was not going to survive for a long time under Oracle stewardship. In fact, the group of 16 founders launched an independent free software project under the stewardship of the Document Foundation to fulfill a promise made by Sun Microsystems 10 years before. At the time, uh, at the time of the first announcement of OpenOffice.org, of the independent free software foundation capable of pushing forward the free office suite to the next level. After five years, LibreOffice is acknowledged in the marketplace as the sole Microsoft Office contender based on sheer feature-by-feature -feature comparison and on the number of successful migrations. Migrating to LibreOffice has never been easier thanks to the migration protocol drafted by the most experienced people at the Document Foundation, which outlines the best practices adopted by several large projects worldwide. A success confirmed by the future of Open Source Survey in 2015, which has put LibreOffice amongst the most seven valuable open source projects based on the answers provided by, by over 1,300 professionals worldwide. It has been an amazing journey. In five years, LibreOffice developers have not missed a single time-based release with major announcements in late January and late July and minor announcements on a monthly basis. Thanks to the sustained pace, LibreOffice has reached a richness and feature and a level of interoperability which are second to none. I use Office on a daily basis. How about you, Wes? Yeah, pretty much. Every, pretty much every day. You know, I was trained um, as a Microsoft Office user specialist. So supposedly, I had these letters after my name that said I was supposed to know something about an Office suite. And as Microsoft Office continued to push newer and newer versions out, I found myself literally getting lost. And the most embarrassing thing, I think, to date, that's ever happened to me in an office suite was I was uh, I was giving a presentation and the computer the, the presentation computer had a uh, had the newest version of Microsoft Office. And that, that was this is when they switched to ribbons. Right. Yeah. And I couldn't find a core function. And I had to look up to a group of, um, you know, IT professionals and I'm presenting. So supposedly I'm supposed to know something that they don't. I'm supposed to be teaching them something. And I had to ask them to come up and show me how to use a function of Microsoft Office. And. It was about that time when I realized I didn't want to be beholden to Microsoft Office anymore. And I switched to LibreOffice. And ever since then, every client that comes to my company that is looking for help with an Office suite, we move them to LibreOffice as well. Uh, do you use LibreOffice as like as like a daily driver or is it something that you use, uh, you know, just to, to modify a document or to write a letter or something like that? You know, it's definitely more of the latter. Um, but... I, I kind of started, I started back with OpenOffice. Um, I wasn't really a Linux user then, but to think about it, back in high school, my my high school actually had Linux on a lot of the workstations. Um, I, I remember getting in trouble for uh, a long-running C program that I left running on the network. Um, but uh, we started with OpenOffice, and then uh, I, I migrated to Microsoft Office when I was in college, and I, I like you, I was also responsible for doing some training uh, of people using those suites. And sure. I have just been continually impressed with what the Document Foundation and LibreOffice have done. You know, even if you ignore the elephant in the room of, you know, Microsoft Office, they've just mm -hmm. been able to, you know, to create a standards-based, 
very usable productivity suite that, you know, that you can right. use if you use it, especially internally, if it's a, you know, consistent deployment, you can pretty much do anything that you would reasonably need to do efficiently, productively, and in a very pleasant environment. And and they seem very responsive as well, so that, you know, new features get added, compa- compatibility gets improved. It's it's really like a testament to the open source software in general. You know, Wes, I had a chance to head over to Red Hat. And when I was at Red Hat, I was talking to those guys and I said, how is it that a one, that a billion dollar company, a billion dollars, how is it that you guys managed to avoid using Microsoft Office? And he said, honestly, when it comes down to it, the basic stuff that you do in, in an office suite is there. Like all the functionality is there. The way you go about doing it, sometimes the buttons are in little different locations. Sometimes yeah, the things exactly. are a little different. Layout's a little different, but the functionality is there. Um, and so I, I think that uh, I think that people that say, oh, I can't do that in open office or I can't do that in LibreOffice. I think those people, I think that's just a cop out. And I think that it's it's not that you can't do it in LibreOffice. I think that 99 percent of the time it's people just don't want to do it in LibreOffice. Yes, they don't want to learn that new workflow. And, and you know, and that that's a barrier. But if you get over it, it's a it's a glorious thing on the other side. And the other thing is, too, is what what I see is what you're you are trading the you are trading the comfortability of Microsoft Office for the known future of LibreOffice. I, I don't know what Microsoft, what changes Microsoft is, is going to make. Only Microsoft knows that, if Microsoft knows that. But when it comes to LibreOffice, um, I, can, I can have a voice in that conversation. I can reach out to the developers and say, hey, you know what? This is a feature I'm really looking forward to. And I do do that. When I bump into those guys, um, and they are at most Linux Fests, when I bump into those guys, I tell them, I say, hey, this is the kind of feature I'm looking for. This is the kind of functionality I really need. Is that something that that you can accommodate? Um, and most of the time, the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. And then usually with a yes, they're able to give a time frame of about how long that's going to take um, before that functionality arrives. How about the mumble room? I kind of want to open it up to you guys. Uh, we haven't really even said hello to you guys. Time appropriate greeting, mumble room. Time appropriate, guys. Time appropriate so, uh, um, as far as LibreOffice, I mean, the only thing that it can't do very well is the Microsoft Office formats, and it's still getting those much better uh, in the recent releases. So, I mean, as far as like most of the time, LibreOffice is all you really need. Yeah, I, I, I guess I suppose I have to backtrack just a little bit. Um, I'll have to eat a couple of my words. I suppose if you're doing something very, very, very um, very some very special formula in Excel based formula or something like that. I guess I could see a, a couple of times when you're where you're where it would be a lot of work to use LibreOffice instead of Microsoft Office. Um, and that didn't really dawn on me until you until Rotten you had mentioned the concept of of transitioning from one Office suite to another and keeping file consistency. Um, I, I have done that a couple of times, and ninety nine percent of the time it goes well. But you're right. Every once in a while, if there's a Microsoft Office format and you try and open that up in LibreOffice, something goes a little kitty wonker, and then that causes some problems. Uh, how there's, about anyone? There's, there's also um, big companies that have implemented uh, large uh, software solutions which only integrate with Microsoft Office, and there's a big one that most large companies use, and that's SAP. And for a long, 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 long time, and it may still be the case, I haven't looked in the last three years, but while you're inside your SAP system, dealing with your customers, your HR records, your finances, your your materials management, whatever it is inside mm-hmm. SAP, if you press any button that is, you know, export this as a 
as a document, the only thing it will talk to is Microsoft Office. You, you absolutely really? cannot integrate with LibreOffice or OpenOffice or any other Office suite. It just cannot. It just doesn't do it because, really, if you're implementing SAP, you're a you know you're a Fortune 500 company and many more, and it, you could be pretty much guaranteed that the desktops will have microsoft windows right, on, it's just and they will that have level. microsoft office exactly so there's, there's no point in them even implementing that kind of integration that may well have changed in the last three years but i seriously doubt it now how about uh using letting that software export to microsoft office and then opening it with LibreOffice? well it's not it's not just a case of exporting data out it doesn't spit data out as um as like an xls file or a, or a doc this is making reaching into the office install on your machine oh. and placing calls into the application so it integrates tightly and it might even embed like you might be sat yeah. there looking at a screen in sap and then you press a button that says give me a graph and that reaches mm-hmm. into your machine downloads some stuff to your machine and then makes some system calls into um, microsoft office this is the that stuff that ren- renders that inside the gui for the application and and sap is not the only one it's the one i've got most familiarity with but there are plenty of these office applications which are used by large companies and which there is no way you're going to move these people off of microsoft office because they're dependent upon something which costs them millions and millions in maintenance fees every year they're not just going to switch away from that that's just not going to happen so it's some i mean for small and medium-sized enterprises and for the people who are doing the basic stuff and home users yes LibreOffice is perfectly fine for education yes perfectly fine but for the very large deployments it's a lot more difficult. Now, do you think those companies are um, are not taking into account a certain level of risk by banking on the fact that uh, that their software is going to continue to talk to Microsoft and that Microsoft is going to continue to provide Microsoft Office in a way that that software can talk to it? So, like, for example, look at Office 365. A lot of businesses have switched to Office 365. I would imagine that that, to some degree, changes um, the ability of a of a third party software being able to talk directly to Microsoft Office doesn't it? No, not at all. The, the all these um, large software companies have um, people who work for Microsoft embedded in the company. They have people oh, okay. who work for Oracle embedded in the company. They 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 have partner status with them, so they get access to this stuff early on, and they will integrate so that you know in the next release or the next release two years down the line remember corporates don't tend to move super fast upgrading their back-end erp systems and these people will um will say you know coming in the next release or two releases down the line we'll have integration with office 365 and that'll be fine because you know significant numbers of those companies are still running on windows 7 or some of them maybe even on Mm. windows xp The, the the they're not they're not itching to move on to the next release well the reality is with office 365 it is it is somewhat operating system independent i can run off at 365 inside of ubuntu and it works just fine um not necessarily recommending anyone should do that um but i wonder how uh how that sap system would talk in if it, if it can't talk to the operating system i bet that it, would that screw it up it's a it's a prerequisite i mean if you oh, okay if you were to if you were to try and install the the GUI and you try and do something in the GUI that requires Microsoft Office and the client doesn't have Microsoft Office installed or it's not a Microsoft um, client, then it, that piece of functionality will fail. And the, mm-hmm. the net result of that is that employee can't do their job. And if they're, that employee can't do their job, right. then you know, you're know you not going to migrate away from Windows. So right. it's, it's a lot more complicated than just, um, you know, 
what's the most complicated Excel spreadsheet you can think of does it sure. in LibreOffice or what's the most cunningly formatted Word document that, that makes sure it renders correctly inside uh, LibreOffice docs. You know, most of those, those things are covered. Those bases are, are fine. It, it's, it's the, it's when you're dependent upon, you know, Microsoft system calls and things like that, that you're screwed. You, you can't move away. That makes total sense. And I, I stand corrected. Uh, you know, I, I have, uh, I have obviously, I have very limited experience with, with very, very large companies. Um, certainly have even less experience with very large companies that have very large deployments of windows. Um, but, uh, and I, and I, and I say that unashamedly. Um, but, um, there are certain things that uh, that that I don't think Microsoft Office will ever be able to compete with LibreOffice. And one of them is, for example, the Document Freedom Day. Um, and it's this idea that we can celebrate and raise awareness for the concept of open standards. Um, I really wanted to participate in this last year. I'm really looking forward to participating in it next year. But and and Poby, maybe you have uh, have some insight. Did did you personally or did you at work? Um, uh, support or have any involvement with document freedom day so the last time i was involved in this was when it was um before document freedom day when it was software freedom day many 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 years ago there was a software freedom day and we decided to take part in the uk and in london uh we had a bunch of uh, cds that were provided by canonical the ubuntu cds and uh, we had some leaflets that we printed out and we went for a walk we all met up in a park in london and we went for a walk through london and then we met up at a a um a venue where we gave talks and talked about software freedom and uh, you know all the all the kind of topics that you'd expect to hear at a conference uh, or a, an event about software freedom and uh, as we walked through london we were handing cd's and you know you know those people who stand in the street who try and like thrust something into your hand and you really don't want to make eye contact and you don't yes. want to talk to those people well yes. you know that was us <laughs> and um in in england you know uh, i'm i'm sure it's somewhat different the British reserved personality where, you know, we'll do absolutely anything to avoid eye contact with you. Um, and we would, we were testing like, as we walked along different phrases that we could use to get people to take the CD out of our hand. Like, you know, would you like some free software and, you know, free software, free culture or free, you know, we were trying all kinds of phrases and, uh, some of them worked better than others. Um, I hope you I, documented I those. Uh, yeah, well, we, yeah, we wrote up, uh, our, uh, our, uh, uh, our event but uh one particularly memorable we were standing outside a, a store um that was like you know like a best buy like fries you would have over there as pc world over here and um it was at a junction uh, where there was some traffic lights and a big red london bus pulled up and uh one of the guys took the opportunity to walk up to the bus driver and handed him one of the cds and said hey would you like some free software and the guy looked at it and said, ah, oh, is this that replacement for Windows? And our guy went, yes, oh, nice. that's exactly wow. what it is. That's <laughs> but awesome. The, but this was like nearly 10 years ago, eight years ago. And, uh, you know, people, some people knew about it back then. But um, no, I haven't been involved in the Document Freedom Day more recently. I know some people have, but I am. I, I would love to get more more involved with that. And the, the, um, the stories that I've heard from people that have participated in it are absolutely outstanding. And you can actually get um, some funding, as I understand it, from the Document Foundation for... Uh, um, from the Open Document Foundation for uh, uh, putting on uh, a Document Freedom Day in your area. So it's definitely something I'm going to look into. Um, anyone else in the mobile room have any experience with uh, with LibreOffice or enjoy using LibreOffice or uh, more to the point, experience with switching people from Microsoft Office to LibreOffice? Yeah, I've worked with uh, several friends and family members that, uh, you know, we just bypass uh, the whole uh, Microsoft Office compatibility issue entirely when 
uh, you're creating documents for distribution, just save them as PDFs. Yeah, yeah totally. Oh, PDFs that's a great a option. Yeah, PDFs are great. The thing that bothers me about PDFs is if if anytime you need to edit something or change something, right, that becomes kind of problematic. Weren't they? Didn't they have like an embedded format where you could embed a open office or a open document format in a PDF, or or maybe it was vice versa? Yeah, that could be. If there, I'm not I'm not personally familiar with it, but uh, North Ranger, how about you? You know, I did not try that, but uh, like the biggest example I had of you know distribution was uh, resumes. Oh sure, yeah. Yeah, the nice thing about resumes is that you can actually download a lot of the templates um, for Microsoft Office, open them with LibreOffice, and then um, go in there and, and and just plug in the information, and it works. And, I, and I've actually done that a couple of times or helped people do it a couple of times. Never really run into a snag doing that. There's also a Linux uh, converter so that if it's just a command line tool that you run it, you can convert uh, a PDF that doesn't have editability or have any text uh, connected to it convert it into a editable format that is still PDF, but fundamentally lets you change things. Yeah, I just see on uh, LibreOffice's website here, they have support for hybrid PDF, where they do embed an ODF file. So uh, PDF viewers will see the PDF, but if you open in LibreOffice, it's uh, fully modifiable. And I assume when you save it, then oh, that's awesome. it updates the PDF. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. Because the nice thing about that is it requires people that are, that uh, the people that want to monkey with it are going to know how to monkey with it, and the people that don't know how to monkey with it probably aren't the people we want modifying the file anyway, right? Exactly. And there's no there's no excuse with LibreOffice. You know, if it's like you sent this this document and you do want to edit it, well, it's free software. You can download it, no cost. It's available for pretty much every platform, so you know, perfectly interoperable. Rotten Corpse, you want to jump in there? Well, I was just going to say that there is actually another. Um, there's a there's a cloud. That this is not something you'd want to use. If care about like privacy of your stuff but there's this cloud uh converters system uh it's a service called uh cloud convert.io i think and it i've tested it in certain cases where you can convert a pdf no matter what kind of weird formatting it has to anything you want like i tried to convert uh a pdf to an html file just to see if it would do it uh and it perf- it did it perfectly it had all the pages had all the formatting like everything was perfect, and it kind of blew my mind how like exact it did it, no matter what format I picked. That's it's awesome. Worth, it's worth saying for for everything I've said about Microsoft Office, um, LibreOffice is incredibly flexible, and over the last couple of years, it's being bent into different shapes that you probably wouldn't have expected it to, or that you wouldn't have expected the same code base from so many years ago that originated, you know, Star Office, Open Office, and now LibreOffice yeah. that. That now, for example, there's a um, there's a, a tool that's part of LibreOffice called LibreOffice Kit, and with LibreOffice Kit, you could take an installation of LibreOffice with no GUI, no, uh, so you you don't actually use LibreOffice on on the desktop, but you could have an install of LibreOffice, say on a headless server, and with mm-hmm. LibreOffice Kit, you can pass it any supported LibreOffice document, and it will give you back a bitmap of what that document looks like. No so kidding. That's awesome. It's it's amazing. And we're actually using that on the Ubuntu phone. So the document viewer has inside it a copy of LibreOffice. And when you open a document, it throws the document at LibreOffice through LibreOffice Kit. LibreOffice then renders the document, throws it back a bitmap, and we display that on the screen. And you just move that around. So you scrolling the document is you moving a bitmap around the screen. It's pretty amazing. And it does this all this in real time. Yeah. 
and you but you can you know you can you can throw it a bitmap and say show me this part of the document so i you know if the user has zoomed in you might want to show you know only the top left hand corner of the spreadsheet or something so you tell LibreOffice kit here's the document show me the top left hand corner of that document and it will throw you back a bitmap only of that bit and when you page down it will render only the second page and when you page down it only renders the third page so it's, it's incredibly flexible what you can do with with LibreOffice and in some ways you know more flexible than Microsoft Office I th- yeah, and I think that's a good note to end on. That well, I guess here this is another good note to end on. LibreOffice Libre 5.0 launched in early August and has been the most successful major release ever, triggering an unprecedented eight thousand donations in just thirty days. Of course, the success had been reflected in the number of adoptions, which has soared. The icing on the cake has been the announcement of the Italian Defense Organization, which will be mig- migrating some one hundred and fifty thousand PCs to LibreOffice starting from October in twenty fifteen. You know, uh, it was I think it was last month or the month before. I actually we went over into a clinic and we migrated their entire clinic over to LibreOffice. We went in and, and systematically removed Microsoft Office and switched them all over to LibreOffice. And along with LibreOffice, we had to move their database, their main uh, medical database, over. And it had been hosted on a seven-year-old server. And the problem was, um, it was slowing down and it was starting to crash or or actually just unexpectedly shut off and they didn't have the two thousand dollars plus to purchase a new machine and even if they did have the money they didn't have an in-house it staff which would have meant that we would have been quoting out either a service contract to come out and replace hard disks when they fail or add memory when it goes off or bring up backup internet when the when the when the fiber line fails and all, all those good things um and we were actually able to solve all of their concerns for just 120 bucks a year over at digital ocean DigitalOcean, if you're not familiar with them, they're a VPS that does servers, Linux servers, in fact, on demand. It's kind of, you might say it's like the McDonald's of fast food in the server world. We move dozens of businesses over to DigitalOcean. And just like when we move a business from Windows over to Linux or we move a business from Microsoft Office to LibreOffice, they never look back. In the, in the two years that we've been moving people over to DigitalOcean, I don't think I've ever had a client that has told me they want to go back to buying servers and paying a yearly fee to maintain them. Um, their intuitive dashboard makes spinning up servers, or as they call them, droplets, super easy and efficient. At least once a week, I try to spin something up um, just to play with something. I try to start up a new droplet and try something new just to kind of keep myself fresh and kind of keep myself exploring. Um, I don't have the time to install an operating system on a bare metal box. Uh, it just takes too much time. Now, I'll give you a pro tip. If you go over and spin up uh, a DigitalOcean droplet, and you use the code DO Unplugged, DO Unplugged, all one word, all lowercase, you're going to get a $10 credit. And that basically means you get the servers that I use all the time for two months for free. That's a $5 droplet with a terabyte of transfer, a 20 gigabyte solid state drive, and 512 megabytes of RAM. If you know how to use Linux correctly, that gets you a long, long way. I have EMR uh, databases running on it. I have a Mumble server running on it. I have an Airtime instance. Um, I have my Quasso core running on it. I have the chat server that we were using uh, back when we were doing um, the video portion of the Linux Action Show. All of that stuff were, was running on a $5 droplet. So head over to DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code DOUnplugged, D-O-Unplugged, all lowercase, all one word, and you'll get $10 credit to spin up your own Linux rig uh, for two months. I want to move on and talk about uh, the Ubuntu installer. Now, um, things have, things have, uh, things are changing 
in the Ubuntu installer, and the installer is called Ubiquity. Uh, Wes, have you seen this? Uh, yeah, I've used it. I've used it a couple times. <clears throat> so they are changing um, the uh, the the slideshow. I understand. Have you read about this? I was just reading about it this morning, actually. So the one thing that I have noticed is uh, the first time I install a new distro or the first time I install uh, what would be a new operating system, essentially, um, I'm paying attention to what's on the screen. I'm looking at how the UI elements are designed. I'm looking at the screen uh, the screen caps that they share and stuff like that. And I think it makes a lot of sense to update a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the stuff that's inside of the installer, because I think that's the first impression a lot of people are getting with Ubuntu. Would you agree? Oh yeah, and you know it's really that that first impression is so important. You really need to to lay it home that this is a modern operating system. You know, it's uncompromising on on all the kind of stuff that you would expect from it. That it's easy, that it welcomes you, and that it's going to create a really good experience really from the get go. Yeah. yeah. So um, I have uh, back a couple months ago we were redoing the uh, Angela's MacBook because we're selling it on eBay. And one of the things that I noticed about it was it plays a video uh, when you, when you start up Mac OS this is really one of the few times I've ever used Mac OS, but of all the things I didn't like about the operating system experience, I thought that was kind of cool that it had like this welcome video and it showed like the hello in a couple different languages and stuff like that. Oh yeah. I'm familiar with that. Have you seen that? Yeah, it, it is pretty, it is pretty slick. You know, it makes you, makes you feel like you're already using the computer even though you haven't quite finished installing it yet. Yeah. So I, I thought that was kind of cool. And it was kind of like a, a welcome to your computer sort of a thing. Exactly. And since most of us are installing Linux, the installer and the images that come with the installer are what is greeting us to the operating system. And um, uh, Chris had put uh, put some of these show notes together. So I, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I'm, I'm a little confused on a, on a, on a few of the details here. Um, but um, I think that the... I think that the the graphical interface is really important. I think it's I think it's kind of cool. Uh, Popey, do you have anything to add about Ubiquity or, or and uh, and feedback that you guys yeah. get? Yeah. So uh, this was a surprise to me as well. So <laughs> you know, the design guys go and they they mostly work in London in the London office um, at Canonical. And um, if you if you ever go into the London office, if you're ever um, lucky enough to go in there, there's post-it notes all over the walls. They're big on post-it notes. There's loads of uh, prototypes, drawings, and uh, mock-ups of, you know, user interfaces that may be in the future or might have been if we'd gone on a different path. And one of the things about the installer is, I'm not sure I agree with you. I think the installer, it may well be the the, the first impression that people see of the distro. I believe that it shouldn't be because users shouldn't be installing Linux. They should be buying a machine that has Linux pre-installed. And therefore, they wouldn't see the install process because it would come pre-installed. That's what happens with Windows. Nobody nobody cares about mm-hmm. the install process of Windows. Very true. Nobody cares about the install process of OS X. The, most of the time, the users see the install process of Windows or yeah, normal users. I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not your listenership, but you know, your average Joe. Right. The most that they're going to see the installer is looking over the shoulder of someone else doing it and therefore they don't care or um you know if they're being like super techie and someone told them to reinstall because you know their machine's completely hosed and that's the only way out right so mm-hmm. i i'm not sure that that the installer is the is the best thing as the showcase however what you will notice in the blog post that 
is on design.canonical.com about why the first impression matters, you'll notice that the screens that they've talked about changing are the ones that you see after an OEM install. So it's not the full install. It's not It's not like the partitioning scheme and all that kind of wacky stuff that you and I know all about and can skip through nice and happily. Right. It's the stuff that an end user would see. And the stuff that an end user would see on first run is, okay, what language do you want? What Wi-Fi co- uh, connection do you want to connect to? What time zone are you in? Um, uh, do you want to set a password? And do you mm. want the you know, the system to lock and automatically unlock for you? That kind of thing. Mm. And And so I find it interesting that actually that kind of corroborates my perspective that the the first thing that we should be showing people is a great experience out of the box when you buy a machine. Now I would love to see like a funky video, like you say, Mm -hmm. or, you know, something pretty that we can show a user, you know, when they first take their thing out of the box, because, you know, let's face it, when people do unboxing videos, they love these things. When, you know, when the, when the Nokia N900, uh prototype phones or early uh, doctor phones were sent out they came in a special box that had special buttons and you had to send code over a serial cable and when the box opened smoke came out it was amazing <laughs> wow. right so that unboxing experience it, it should feel special to everyone yeah i'm not saying we should provide like smoke and stuff inside, right. every, inside hazardous. every laptop yeah and and somewhat expensive intel did with a nug so you open it it has a little intel sound yeah oh yes yep. See that and the um, exploding kittens card game that was on <laughs> Kickstarter. That when you open the box, you hear the, you know beautiful things that you get when you take the thing out of the box. It means you cherish the thing a little bit more, and I think that's one of the factors why people who tend to buy Apple products cherish them a lot more. Is because of that whole out of the box experience. It makes mm-hmm. you want to love it even more. Like you know, going and picking a kitten up. Uh, for the first time when you when you've like got a kitten from a rescue center or something when you pick it up for the first time you cherish it even more after that first meeting do you know what i mean right yes absolutely especially if it you know sometimes let's face it some people's first introduction to ubuntu or linux in general is met after several hours of troubleshooting yes very much so and right, so, that's the worst thing, isn't it? it? It is because then 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 it is tainted and the trust for the operating system is almost lost a little bit um so I, I, I definitely, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, even the, the issues like, um, like the Apple thing is a good point. Like, cause the Apple boxes, they will just, they'll, they'll keep the boxes and display them because of just the way they present the out of the box experience. You know, if, if there was a, something like that for the, the UI or I don't know, before you install something it, like maybe they should put like the Ubuntu has the demo where you can just like, use Ubuntu in the browser for a little bit and kind of experience it that way. If they put that more, give more attention to that. Well, in fact, uh, it's interesting you should say that. Um, in China, I think you do actually get that out of the box. We there was, a, there was a government directive, I believe, that in China many years ago that was, you know, when you ship a machine, you have to provide some kind of tutorial out of the box because a lot of the people who are buying these things are farmers out in the middle of nowhere and they've had ne- they've never bought a computing device before in their life and they've got no idea what to do when you turn it on and that and that's not unique to ubuntu you know a- any computer they turn it on and they wouldn't know what to do in the same way that a you know farmer from the middle of america or the middle of the uk wouldn't know what to do if they never touched a computer before um and so we did used to put, I don't know if we still do, the, the web-based <laughs> tutorial on uh, 
um, machines that were shipping in China. And in fact, Dell, are, I think, on the XPS 13, I don't have one, I've never bought one, but I'm led to believe there is a funky little video at the start of that, and I believe Dell made that. We didn't we didn't create that, and it doesn't ship on the CD, and it's not on anyone else's. Like, if you buy a Lenovo, you don't get that video. So there is, there, there is a you know, a move towards making that whole out-of-the-box experience a little bit better. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. Now, I have been automating my home uh, for some time, and joining us in the Mumble Room, we have a very special guest. Anna is here. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm fine. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about Crowdstone. Yeah, so uh, what we created here in Rotterdam, uh, like one of the harbors in, in, in Europe, of course, is a, uh, a little device that you can plug into a power outlet, which is completely open source, so can be hacked by anyone who uh, likes a little bit of uh, like the, the firmware hacking. And uh, what it does is actually two kind, two kind of things at the same time. Of course, you can dim lights and you can switch devices and things like that, like the usable home automation stuff. But it also has um, proximity and indoor localization functionality. It does that by um, knowing how far your phone is. So it measures the distance uh, to your phone. And at the same time, it also has device recognition on board. So if you plug in your TV or something else, it knows what the difference is between those devices using yeah, the, the consumption pattern over the day. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. It can identify the device, huh? Absolutely, yeah. So we use multiple ways to do that. So one of the, the simple ways is actually just using the power consumption itself, of course. But you can also see the pattern over time. Uh, my background is robotics. So I, I, I use a lot of algorithms we have been developing over the time. And um, so over the if you use a, a collection of reclassifiers, uh, they can use all kind of features, for example, temporal features or other kind of features. You can collect them, and collectively they uh, are able to distinguish a lot of devices. And there is a third way you can do, uh, you can use, and that is a, um, say, every device leaves a kind of a signature on the grid. So if you plug in a LED LED, uh, a LED uh, uh, light, you will have some uh, signature that is different from if you plug in a, a normal light bulb. And you can use that on a single sine wave. You can already see what the difference is between certain devices. Now, I understand that um, these, these, uh, this device can actually recognize uh, a certain form of rudimentary logic. So, for example, if my TV, I don't unplug it. It just sits in the living room and stays there. So, if I were to unplug my TV, that would be a bit unusual. How does your device respond? Um, if you, yeah, so these are the kind of events we want to, uh, to be able to register. So uh, if you would unplug your TV at night, it's probably kind of events you want to uh, receive as, as the owner of the building uh, or of the home of the, or the apartment. Uh, if it's uh, your microwave that gets plugged out, uh, you, you probably don't need to know it. Tell me a little bit about how the child lock feature works. Um, how does it know if there are adults in proximity or not know if adults are in proximity? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a, it's a, it's a nice feature. I was actually uh, 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 
we had a group of 50 students that were working on our uh, product, uh, undercover, so to say, uh, at, in Rotterdam. And uh, one of those groups were coming up with this feature. And it was first like, yeah, but I don't want to have children carrying phones with them. But it was the other way around. So it was really um, parents that are walking around. And when they are in proximity, uh, certain uh, devices can be turned on. When they are not, they are not turned on. And the proximity detection is just by using the, the, the Bluetooth low energy signal strengths that are already on your phone. So basically by measuring kind of, uh, say, is it in between three or five meters, something like that, uh, it should be on. If it's beyond that, it should be off. Now, I understand that uh, this, we're kind of in early days here. In fact, you have a Kickstarter over at crownstone.rocks. Um, Is that correct? Yeah. So if you go there, yeah, you will uh, automatically can go. Uh, you will have one go button and you can go then to the Kickstarter. Tell me, uh, at some point, uh, will there be a way that I can integrate this inside of the box? Because I know one of the things I'm seeing right off the, the top of my head is I would be perfectly okay with it. My wife, however, is not going to appreciate a protruding object from the um, outlet. If this project takes off, maybe an iteration two or three, would there be a way that we can get this so it actually replaces the wall outlet itself? There is one version that you can actually uh, put behind the power outlet. So if oh, there you, is. If, That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, you should have enough space, of course. There is a little bit of space required uh, in your uh, junction box. But uh, yeah, then for the for the for your wife or so, nothing changes. She can just turn on and off the lights, um, and you can basically uh, rule it over, kind of by by uh, uh, doing it wirelessly, and then she will be like, "Oh, um, it's not going on," but she will probably flip in another time, and then mm -hmm. for her, not th not so much changes. She can still use the physical uh, switch. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Now, you said that all of this is designed with open source in mind. Tell me how I can interface to this device. I, I get the I get the little plug. I assume there's there's some way that I can program it to tell it um, I want you to, you know, act as a child locker. I want you to act as a motion detector. I want you to act, you know, in this way or the other. How, how do I go about actually programming the device? Yeah, yeah. We decided to uh, actually put a lot of logic onto the smartphone. So... Um, First of all, we have uh, open firmware, so you can do everything on the device itself if you want to. But that is uh, an embedded device, so it's difficult to program for certain people. Um, it, it, it has a 16 kilobytes of RAM. It's like the, the radio takes up 10 kilobytes, so it's very, very little space you have on a device like that. You won't be able to run JavaScript or something. Um, so um, our Bluetooth Love Energy interface basically is an API that people can use from whatever, what, whatever kind of device they have, the, a laptop uh, with Python scripts or uh, Raspberry Pi or things like that. Um, but the main advantage is also that we provide libraries on the smartphone, uh, mm -hmm. diff different ones, so Cordova-based and iOS and Android-based. So they can actually write uh, applications like they normally do for uh, smart, like smartphone apps, and they can directly interface with those uh, brownstones uh, from their phones. Um, yeah, what's also different from uh, normal uh, or like different Kickstarters, uh, 
quite often they stream everything to a server, like for example the Fitbit or something like that. You cannot actually uh, get your own data out except for via REST API online. Uh, we decided to do it directly on your phone, so you really can't get your own data. You don't need to go through as uh, company servers or things like that. Oh, that's awesome! So there's no centrally activated service. See, that would be my first. That would be my first line that that would rule me out of your product. Is if you told me. Well, there's a little serial number and you have to go to our website and activate it and then use our web portal to program it and stuff like that. But you're telling me, basically, if I really wanted to, if I got nitty and gritty, I could actually plug in with like a serial cable and and program this thing with my laptop. Um, yeah, uh, we will also add a pledge for developer edition with separate connectors. But at the moment, you will uh, need to uh, do it over the air. So we have Bluetooth low, oh, okay. low and uh, yeah, so we have the uh, how does the how does the over the air uh, programming work? If I want to do it directly on the device, you you spoke about uh, being able to do that, or are the two mutually exclusive? Um, no, but but uh, so uh, via wires you need connectors on it, but uh, the default is that you can do it uh, uh, wirelessly, and you can do it uh, via say uh, a standard application that's already on 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 the, on the market, or you can do it actually also via uh, shell scripts, uh, uh, Python scripts. Now, there's a lot of um, home automation type equipment that is already prevalent in the market. Um, so, for example, Universal Remote Controls or URC, um, they have templates on how to talk to other devices, either via TCP/IP or um, over RF. I assume because it's an open standard, that should be a pretty simplistic thing. That should be a pretty rudimentary thing for me to tie um, your device into uh, my remote control. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Any any kind of hub that exists that has Bluetooth low energy and it doesn't even need to have that because there are a lot of switch, uh, like little dongles available for only a few bucks. And then, yeah, it's very basic to hook up to other stuff. Absolutely. Wes, do you have any questions uh, uh, about uh, about this smart socket? I'm just really impressed with how, um, how open it, it appears, you know. A lot of the other platforms that we're seeing in this kind of space are are so closed off. A lot of them, if you download the SDK, you have to sign an agreement that you won't use it to, you know, yeah. create interoperability with other products. Uh, so the idea here that we could just, you know, you could take something that you've already bought, or maybe you know someone you're installing this for is already has some sunk costs, and then just create something to bridge it and and take advantage of this is awesome. And I think it's one of the best things going for it. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that it's open uh, really appeals to me. How about our mumble room? Do you guys have any questions, comments, concerns? Yeah, is it, if you if, it has, if your laptop has Bluetooth, for example, can you use your laptop to interface with the device? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Your laptop is fine as well. Um, I've, I've myself, I am only uh, using Linux, so I don't uh, know how it works on Windows. But <laughs> he knows how to get our interest. Yeah, no kidding, <laughs> man. You just earned yourself ten character points. Yeah. Yeah, as, and as a, as a hobby, I have been actually uh, backing a lot of uh, Kickstarter projects, and uh, most often, uh, if if I cannot get to the data, I try to do it myself. So, with the Fit, Fitbit or the the, the Maymoto camera thing or whatever, um, but I find it a pain that they make it so closed. So that's why we really wanted to make this product so open. It really shows. That's that's great. I, uh, if you, you, you really probably should check out that video, uh, where we go through the house and, 
and go through how everything works. One of the things I demoed is my scene selector in my house where I can um, hit the bedtime mode and it, it turns all the lights down so I can kind of wind down at night. One of the things I've done is I, um, I, well, I used to watch TV. I used to, I actually got back into Walker, Texas Ranger, the show from the nineties. Um, and I liked that show because it was light. So I, I could, I could watch it. I could wind down for a little bit and I would go to bed as take for contrast 24. If you watch an episode of 24, you have to watch what happens to Jack in the next episode. And so what ends up happening is it's like seven in the morning and you're like, ah, crap, I didn't sleep all night because I sat up all night watching 24. Lately, I have been winding down with a new hobby, and that is I'm learning how to develop apps on Android. Very cool. Yeah, I know. I know. But here's the thing. I know what some people are saying. The chat room's about to freak out and, and the mumble room's about to freak out and say, no, you're not, you're, not a, you're not a dev, you're a sysadmin. And I know that. Okay, I know that. But with a 33% discount over at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged, I can't think of a more cost-effective way to relax at night. And I've had a blast uh, being able to go through those modules. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit ADD, if you haven't picked up on that yet, Wes. Uh, and so I zone out every once in a while. Like, if I'm listening to somebody talk, and I try. I mean, like, bless my wife's heart. She is so good at putting up with this. She'll, she'll start talking to me, and I have every intention of listening to all the words that come out of her mouth. And then, like... Three minutes into it or five minutes into it, I just I like I fade off and I just I go into la la land and then then it's lost. And with with Linux Academy, I can go back and rewatch some of that stuff that I missed. And Wes, I got to tell you, when I first got into IT, I remember how expensive things were, how expensive things were to get trained, how expensive things were to get certified. Yeah, it's a huge roadblock if you're trying, you know, you're just trying to get started out in this industry. It really is. It really is because you're competing with a bunch of people that uh, that, that are on a different playing field. They're essentially on a different level than you are. And, uh, you can do that for pennies on the dollar over at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Do you know what opportunity cost is? Opportunity cost is the price that you pay, um, for not getting that job, uh, because you didn't have the training and you didn't have the certification because you're not at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged, taking advantage of literally a third of the cost reduction. And, you know, the cost isn't even all, all that expensive to begin with, even at full price. I think with the I think with the discount, I think my whole month of training for Android worked out to be like 15 bucks or 16 bucks. Or oh, something. man, that's I mean, nothing. Yeah. Yeah, it really isn't. It's really cheap. And even without the discount, it was only like 25 bucks, I think. Um, so, th I mean, this is the way if you if you're listening to the show and you're listening and saying, you know, I really want to do what Noah does. I really like the idea that Noah doesn't doesn't ever have to troubleshoot Microsoft Windows. I, I mean, I just don't do that. If you want to get yourself a career started with um, in Linux or using open source and, and related technologies, this is the way to do it. First, you have to get current with the technologies, and there's no better way to do that by taking a professional online course. Uh, you know, you can do the YouTube thing where people where you know Joe Blow in his basement makes a little video with a handy cam, um, and you hear his baby sister crying in the background and, and his mother calling him up for dinner, and the, the dog is barking. You can do all that. Go spend a couple of dollars and get yourself some professional training and uh, and then get certified. And they uh, they offer they, they really, really uh, do a good job with some of like the Red Hat certification. So that's a great certification. I know that anytime I have somebody that sits down in my office and, and, and when the when the, their resume slides across my desk and if I see that Red Hat cert, man, that cert means something to me because I know that they have practical skills. Uh, LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Take advantage of that 33 percent discount while you can. Over at ZD article that is looking uh, at OpenSUSE Leap. Have you seen this, Wes? You know, only just a little bit. 
So the, the current stable release of OpenSUSE is 13.2, and that came out on November 4th of 2014. Um, the next release is scheduled to be available November 4th, November, uh, excuse me, November 4th of 2015, exactly one year later. Um, and the new release will not be called 13.3 or 14. Dot, you know, whatever, but rather it's going to be called 42.1. 42.1. And so appropriately, they're co- codenaming this Leap. The reason for the name slash number change and the extra attention that this release is getting is that they are making a philosophical change in the development and release strategy. The reasons for this change and the results uh, of it are discussed on the OpenSUSE Leap wiki page. A lot of the discussion has been focused on OpenSUSE getting merged with SUSE Linux, Enterprise Linux, but I think it's important to note, this is the author speaking, not me, but I think it's important to note that this is more of a two-way street than it is, in fact, as it is explained in the wiki, what happened, which, what enabled the merge, was that SLE sources and maintained updates have been released to the OpenSUSE build service. Now, um, in theory, this is ideally what I, as a Linux desktop user, have been waiting for. A commercial enterprise Linux distro that is centered around the Linux desktop. Um, I, it, I, the, I seem to be stuck on, on two sides. Either I get bleeding edge and things aren't really ready for enterprise and I have problems, or I wind up with really, really old outdated packages and there doesn't seem to be a middle ground. And that seems to be what they're aiming to um, solve here. And I gotta say, their 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 desktop experience in the past has been really good. So this this gives me a lot of hope. Uh, you know, OpenSUSE in the past has been one of those distros that I know I can just install on someone's machine, and they will have all the resources there that they need to use it and yeah. to explore and to you know, in in the same way that they could use Windows, that that they'll be able to solve all the problems and make all the changes they might need. You know, Wes, I don't know if you've noticed this either, but when I move people over from uh, from Windows to Linux, a lot of times. Um, for whatever reason, they are very comfortable in OpenSUSE as opposed to a lot of the other uh, a lot of the other alternative distros out there. And I haven't exactly been able to put my my finger on why that is. If that if that I, I suspect it has a lot to do with KDE. To be honest with you, I think that Windows users kind of gravitate towards having a bar at the bottom where they click on a button that gives them a menu. Yeah, I think I think there is something there. And Yast Yast goes a ways too. Yeah, and so I think that uh, Yas goes a long ways. Yeah, man, does it ever, especially if you are a a former Windows administrator. I think that's going to go a long ways. Um, but I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at this OpenSUSE leap, and the screen caps that I'm looking at are absolutely awesome. I am really looking forward to taking a look at some of this and and playing with this. In fact, I so much so that I've actually dedicated an entire machine to this and it's going to be my main machine for the rest of the week and i'm going to take a look and see um what it is that that open is offering and see if it appeals to me because like i said on paper as i'm reading it this is what i have been waiting for i i mean quite honestly i guess i've kind of been waiting for red hat to do it simply because then i would have um you know it would be like this nice easy transition right it's your home turf already right right and then since i'm already administrating red hat servers and i just it would have been kind of nice but this seems like they are, you know, they're really cracking down and aiming. I am their target audience. I feel like I am the person that this is is written for, uh, that this is written for, and it also seems like they're also targeting uh, ARM guys. 
which is really, really encouraging because you're seeing uh, those ARM devices becoming more and more prevalent and lower and lower cost. Um, and I think that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. You know, it goes, it goes with the whole, the whole Linux way. If you can get a, a, a cheap, easy processor and you know that Linux will just run on it and, and OpenSUSE has got that huge build service so you know that they're ready to, to build any open source software that can be for your platform, then you, know, you, can, you can build the whole solution on that. Yeah, that's the promise. Have you used the, the open build service? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's great. I, I've used it to find um, supported packages. I've used it when I'm using OpenSUSE. And then as well, you mm-hmm. know, it seems to support other distributions as well. Uh, random projects that use it to supply, you know, to build different packages for all kinds of things. Yeah, it builds for uh, Ubuntu devs, Debian devs, uh, RPMs for both SUSE and Fedora and Magia. And it also builds for Arch packages and a couple other things. Well, yeah, I love that Arch package integration. That's that's just great. Yeah, I've actually uh, the only the only thing is is that it has a custom spec file you have to learn how to use. But so basically, you build a script using their spec file, and then it will and then you upload your source to their servers, and then they build out everything for you. It's it's pretty awesome, and I wish more people would use it. You say it's actually better than I think uh, via Tubbleweed. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, what I was saying is that. Uh, People are thinking that it's 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 more like a, a workstation thing, but it's actually a more cohesive sharing structure of what they're going for. So, like they're having, uh, Slee has released all of their stuff for the OBS, so that the OpenSUSE can have they can spend less time on OpenSUSE stable or you know the regular version, and more time on Tumbleweed. And because of this, SUSE has like a deal sort of thing stru- structured where OpenSUSE's uh, base is going to be based on Slee. Then OpenSUSE is going to do extra stuff on top of that to do, uh, you know, more up-to-date packages and provide a more uh, user experience for the, the average user. But they're also doing Tumbleweed. And Tumbleweed is the rolling release, like the Arch thing. And in certain cases, um, you know, people always talk about how Arch gets things faster. But Tumbleweed actually is getting stuff faster uh, I haven't tested for 3.18, but no, they got GNOME 3.16 in before Arch did, and like stable and running and everything. And they're wow. doing they're doing things like that are really impressive in this sense. But the, another cool thing is that Tumbleweed is going to be the base for Slee in the future. So every oh, wow. three years or so, Tumbleweed is going to be like snapshotted, and then that becomes Slee, which then comes back into the you know the 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 workstation type structure for OpenSUSE for Leap, so you'd get uh, Tumbleweed Snap snapshot, then you get uh, the Slee, then you take Slee stuff, put it into uh, Leap again, and then it keep, keeps this you know a whole uh, cycling structure of OpenSUSE like just everything is is shared between the enterprise version and the workstation and the rolling. So, and in, in certain cases, like for example. Every year, Slee does uh, like a service pack that will also be inst- uh, inst- instituted into the Leap packages. So you even get a yearly update as well as just uh, you know the whole you know stuff sitting on top of. It. You're, you're not getting just OpenSUSE editing things and mod- giving you more up-to-date packages. You're also getting SUSE Enterprise updates as well as the OpenSUSE updates and the Tumbleweed updates. That sounds very slick, like a, a a leaner, meaner Debian plus enterprise backend, kind of the, the best of all worlds. That's impressive. It, it does. It sounds like not only is it the best of all worlds, it sounds like somebody is sitting there going, what does Noah want as a Linux distro? And then that's what they're making. 
You don't think those people exist, Noah? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to believe that they do. You know, and the, the, I just, I have, uh, I, I am comfortable in, in a multitude of different Linux distros. I am comfortable on CentOS. I'm comfortable on Ubuntu. I'm comfortable on Fedora. I'm comfortable on Arch. Um, SUSE and OpenSUSE is maybe the one, one of the, one of the few main distros that I haven't used extensively. And this article is really making me reconsider that like big time. I'm downloading the ISO at home right now. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually something you should check out. Another thing that's going to, that will, a lot of people don't even know about it, but it's um, OpenSUSE built the OpenRA system. So it's like a, a, a automated testing structure. And it's, um, that's the, I just put the link in the chat room. This is a cool thing because they're, they're test they're not only just doing leap testing, they're doing tumbleweed testing with this. They're doing, uh, they're, they're working on SLE testing as, as well. And the coolest thing is that if you look at a test, I'm going to send you a link for that too. If you look at one of the tests, it will go through the process of automating it, and then it shows you a screenshot of every single test and whether it passed it or not. And this is a beta one, so there are a couple fails, but this is one of the beta builds. Um, so, And it goes through like the entire installation process, the entire uh, setting up GNOME, the running GNOME, testing different applications in GNOME, and it gives you this full automated testing thing, and it shows you where it works and where it doesn't. And if that wasn't cool enough, they actually made a video version of it, so every single test has a video attached to it. You can watch the test just run. That seems awesome. It really does. Um, I'm going to have to... I'm more of a hands-on learner. So I'm I'm following ninety percent of what you're saying, but I think to really get the the full scale of it, what I'm going to have to do is play with it. Um, and so, like I said, I actually have a laptop um, that is dedicated to trying all this out as soon as I get home tonight. Um, and so uh, I'm going to be playing with it the rest of the week, and and uh, and I'll have to ch- report back in and, and tell you what you think. And Wes, you said you you're considering doing the same, huh? Yeah, you know, I've been looking for a placement. I've been Linux, using Linux Mint uh, on my work workstation mostly because that was one of the provided images when I when I was sure. hired. Um, yeah. But uh, it's feeling a little, uh, you know, I've got the distro hopping itch like many of us do. Uh, so I think this will be a, a great thing to try out and see if I can use it as my day to day at work. Yeah. Anyone else in the mumble room have any thoughts on the open source situation story release? Anyone else going to try it? I'm already trying it. Um, I've got one machine running Tumbleweed. And I haven't tried Leap yet, but uh, I do plan on trying Leap as well. But uh, Tumbleweed is just impressive. Like, um, And especially with the OBS in, in conjunction with OB, with the Tumbleweed, you get, like, it's not really like a PPA. So, like, you know, it's not an alternative to PPA. It's not like the exact same thing. But it is very similar, and you get a lot of packages up to date as well. So, it's it's a really good experience. So if you ha- if you should try both, if you're interested in just seeing what they're what SUS is doing with all this and OpenSUSE is doing, uh, it is really cool. And uh, and and another cool thing is that they have turned like you should look at their installer. Like their installer is nice, it looks great, and it's all in curses. Ooh, really? I love in curses. That's yeah, awesome. It, it it looks it looks like a real like a regular installer like a GUI installer and it is presented like a GUI but it is all through incurses and it's all like I'm pretty sure it's all based on Yast so it's like Yast mm-hmm. is handling it all it is really slick and it it is also like super fast and lightweight when it runs and like it it's kind of like <laughs> it's it's kind of so cool 
it's hard to actually describe it. So uh, I'm so excited with Susan. Uh, yeah, it, you, uh, it is rubbing off. Yeah. Sure is. And I, yeah. And so I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to try it and, uh, and report back. And like I said, it's, it's a little bit hard to conceptualize all this stuff, especially because a lot of the, a lot of the service associated services with open Suze, um, you know, don't mean a lot to me because I, I haven't really used it a whole lot. I, I tried to implement it one time, um, in a, in a commercial setting. And I ran into the first little problem I ran into. I'm not even necessarily blaming OpenSUSE. It was just, it was a dumb little problem that I had. And I just said, uh, just went to Ubuntu. Um, and that was probably a little unfair. And in hindsight, maybe that was a little foolish and short-sighted. But um, I'm going to give it a real whirl and uh, and report back. Now, I have a request from the community and from everyone else. We are looking for Runs Linux. We are looking for, for really cool and unique Runs Linux. Um, we are looking for a picture or a video of something that runs Linux. Um, we see the things that like in restaurants and stuff and, and that, that's super cool. And if you see those, please send those in. But if you have something unique, especially if you are part of a project like the, like the guy that wrote in that did the school bill. Oh, I love running, that one. Yeah. Wasn't that cool? Super cool. I mean, that, that is, that combines everything that is cool. It combines open hardware. It combines open software. It combines a maker and you put Education. all that stuff together. Education. You get all this stuff together and you get something really cool out of it. I know that you guys are out there. I know that you guys that are doing cool runs Linux people. I know you guys are out there. So I want you to upload a video to YouTube or submit a link via the subreddit or email Linux Action Show at jupiterbroadcasting.com or go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click on the contact link and choose Linux Action Show from the drop down menu and let us know about your runs Linux. We really, really want to hear it. Also, the network is could really use your support. Um, patreon.com slash today. I want to make a plea with you guys um, to think about uh, supporting the network. If you're not supporting the network, I know that, um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a wide variety of, of opinions um, on, on, um, on, on the current show lineup and the current way that we're doing the shows. Um, But the way I have always looked at contributing to the network was I pay my cable bill and I pay 80, $90 and um, I'd flip through the channels and some of the shows I liked and some of the shows I didn't like and some of the episodes of the shows I liked and some of the epi- episodes of the shows I didn't like. And at the end of the day, I still paid my cable bill um, because it was a flat fee. And right now, the network is is in need of you guys to 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 step up and help out. So if, if you can afford it, um, we would really appreciate your support. Patreon.com slash today. If you like the content, if you like what you're hearing, and I assume you do if you're listening to the episode – um, uh, throw the network a couple dollars. It, 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 every dollar goes a long, long way and we would really appreciate it. And if you get to swag level, uh, sponsorship, I, I just have to tell you, I, I feel like it's Christmas. The other day, Angela sent me this really cool, um, like, uh, like Jupiter broadcasting pin. Um, Ooh, I'm jealous already. I know it, it's so good. Like I, I like ding dong, the door rings and I go up to the door and here's the mail guy. And I'm like, but I didn't order a package. I did not spend any of my hard earned money. Why am I getting this? And I rip it open and then there's like, there's a little, there's a, there's a little treat in there. And, and I've gotten, I've gotten mouse pads and I've gotten, I've gotten coffee mugs and I, there's, there's all sorts of things. And, and I, I don't know, you know, I see sometimes some of the, the cool stuff that they're thinking of sending out or, or trying to work out sending out. It just, it's a cool thing to do. So if you can get to swag level supportership, if that's something that's in the budget for you, I highly recommend it. It's super, super fun. And it's really rewarding to know that for literally half the cost of what it would cost you for direct TV or half the cost of what it would cost you for cable TV, you're supporting a, uh, you know, you're supporting a, a small, uh, a small business. Plus all that product for Chris's hair, it just doesn't buy itself. 
No kidding, right? We gotta, we gotta yeah, pay and, for that as a community. It, he does. And and he and you know, even living in the RV, I was a little worried. I was a little worried, Wes, when he showed up and he was talking about like doing the dry shampoo. I'm like, what if what if all his hair fell out? And like he's the network baby. depends. I know. It is it is it's a huge deal. And so when he stepped out of the camper for the first time, like I was holding my breath and I'm like, <gasps> and I knock and then he opens the door and there's Hairmaster Chris. Uh, and it looked course. amazing. Yeah, looked amazing. So patreon.com slash today. Really, really, really would appreciate it if we could get uh, if we could get some supporters. Let, let's do this. Let's let's open this up in a browser and let's look. Let's see. Um, let's see what we can accomplish as a team. How many how many patrons does he have right now? Right now he has five hundred and fifty four. Let's see if we can just get to five sixty. But I like round numbers. Do you ever do you ever do that thing where you go to the gas station and you squirt a little bit of gas into the car? And uh, and you 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 have to bump it up to the next dollar just so it's a nice even amount. It's like a fun little game. I know. Yeah. So let's see if we can get it to exactly five sixty. And and so and so Chris wakes up and goes, oh, that, that that's kind of cool. Look what look at what look at what my look what the podcast based on the community was able to accomplish. I think that would be super cool. Agreed. And you know, I always look forward to the next the next program. You know, it's something it's something that I kind of define my week with is is JB is yeah. JB podcasts, and I I know a lot of you guys do too. So. It really doesn't take very much to to keep Chris going. No, no, it really doesn't. And it, like I said, every dollar goes a long, long way. Also, join us Friday for the Linux Action Show. Now, I can't tell you what we're going to talk about. Um, Top secret. Yeah, but I can tell you that in order to pull it off, we are going to need some Coca-Cola, some beef jerky, um, a blanket, a USB drive. And I gave Chris a dedicated laptop before he left Grand Forks. So make sure you tune in. And you can see what we have planned. It's going to be absolutely awesome. And you can use your imagination and see what you can come up with. Uh, Wes, is there anything you want to say before we get out of here? No, just that it's been a pleasure co-hosting with you, Noah. Yeah, I really appreciate it. We should do this more often. I really think we should. Who needs Chris anyway? Yeah, why well, I need Chris. Oh, wait, but, never uh, mind. But, <laughs> but, he, can, but he, can, he can go on vacation every once in a while and enjoy himself. And, uh, and we can hang out. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Linux Unplugged. We should be at our usual time next week. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to keep an eye on that. Chris may change a couple things while he's on the road. If you have feedback about the show, jupiterbroadcasting.com, click on the contact link and choose Linux Unplugged from the drop-down menu. Also, if you miss Hairmaster Chris, follow him on Twitter at ChrisLAS or go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover to see where he is right this second. You can follow me on Twitter at Colonel Linux. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Linux Unplugged. A special thank you to our producer, Michael Tunnell. And our Mumble team. We'll see you right back here next week. a wrap great show everyone indubitably such a pleasure having all these wonderful people oops i i had i hit the wrong button wes i hit Uh-oh. the wrong button and Uh-oh. so and so then then i couldn't hear your voice in my ear hole ah, what will you do without my beautiful voice noah i know i know all right now it's time to go to jbtitles.com JB and we titles. get to pick, i think i get to pick the title today oh, i think i do what an honor yeah oh. yeah i know i know no we're in trouble no. gang that, that makes me sad when i see things like like a title that says who needs chris that's so sad
I would, I would, I would miss the hair vest. Oh, I would, man, I would, I would start too. crying if I didn't, if I didn't hear from him for a week. I think it would cry. I would make me, it would make me sad. Open source power outlets. That's not bad. Um, 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 um. end user dilemma. Oh man, we don't have many. You know what? Now I know why Chris says bang suggest all the way throughout the episode. Now I know you gotta, you gotta go the audience. Yeah. If you don't, you get 12 title suggestions. And who doesn't want to say bang suggest who doesn't want to say bang suggest. Mm -hmm. I think we could have a lot of fun with, uh, God mode. This is Noah in God mode. <laughs> Bang suggest inside of the chat room to come up with excellent titles that we can vote at jbtitles.com. Ultimate Linux podcast. In a now world where no one has submitted any titles. Why does every single advertisement for a movie always start with in a world? Like we don't live in other worlds. We all live in the same world. Maybe that's the, the, the fantasy draw. Maybe. All right, we need titles, guys. We need titles. Maybe it's a oh, we got more multi-universe titles. type thing. No in God mode. Open source power. Open source your power outlets. Open source your power outlets isn't bad, especially yeah, because it's of yeah. I do, so do we like open source power outlets or open source your power outlets? Uh, maybe not your, just because it's shorter. Okay. Know. All right. So, open source power outlets is winning by seven votes. Well, by four votes total of seven. I mean, either one, I think, are great. Not to yeah. say just because I did them, but not, either one. <laughs> Unbiased rotten, as always. Protect the beard. It's not I bad. was focusing more on moving you guys around than anything else. Thank you yes, for thank doing you that. I really, I really, really, really appreciate it because... Um, with the way that the setup is, if I, if I, if I, if somebody would have talked in the mumble room, I would reach over and mute the mumble room, but then that would mute Wes. And there's no way for me to separate Wes unless you put us into our own separate, uh, our own separate channel. Don't and worry, we happen. got this, yeah. You guys are amazing. Just, just amazing. Did you like my thank you to you, Rotten Corpse, at the end? Hell yeah, that was fantastic. I thought <laughs> so. Um, all right. Open source power outlets is the winner. Yeah. I declare it it's as the winner be. because it has to be because, uh, it has the most votes out of everything. Oh, you know what? I'm not going to say it. I'll say it. I'll say it before we get up there, but I won't say it right now. Um, I'm, 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 okay. What are we going to talk about for a post show? I, we we're going to talk about the, uh, open QA dot open source dot, uh, or open org. but yeah, I didn't know that we've got there already. <laughs> I didn't know that was the post show. Impressions there. Oh uh, yeah, no, it doesn't matter. We there's tons of things to talk about. What else should we talk about, guys? Uh, it's up to you, Mumble. Hey, uh, thanks for the meetup shout out. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, let's talk. Well, I guess that was kind of the pre-show topic, but yeah, thank you so much for making the making the time to to be at the uh, the meetup. I we I, I, you know it'd be really cool to get up and and do that every once in a while. I think that should be a thing. Do do do. Yeah, and since I assume Chris isn't going to hear this part, I, I, I'm not going to break it to him that uh, they spelled my name wrong. But they spelled your name wrong. Oh yeah, I had uh, the Rover Rambler. Um, I didn't. T- I didn't leave a card that since my name is read with an I. Oh. Okay, it'll be our secret. It's not like it's going out over the air or anything. So nobody will ever know. So there's an, there's one thing. This is more of an interesting topic, more or less, but it's not really. 
I guess it's, it's perfect for post show, I guess. But there's a there's some new stuff with the like the the Devil's Canyon stuff and the new hardware stuff for um, running um, hard like running virtualization pass through. So you have the hardware hardware acceleration and everything uh, in a virtual machine. So you could use something like um, KVM or you could use uh, Vert Manager or whatever. And I think even VirtualBox has this. So you can play uh, Windows games inside of a virtual machine with your hardware and everything. So it feels like a full, you know, you have a full machine. You basically have, you know, everything you absolutely need. And even like 60 frames per second games and stuff running now. Are they using and, like KVM pass-through for that? Yeah, there's KVM pass-through. And, uh, well, it's, it's PCI pass-through, but... Uh, okay. You basically get access to your graphics card, and you get the full uh, processor ability. So it limits like your main host, but that, if you're playing a game, it really doesn't matter. But it, it gives you like the full access to all of your hardware, and only like the latest, like from Haswell and newer, has these like these features like pretty solid. But you need to have like a motherboard, and the processor needs to support right. it. Both need to support it, otherwise it won't work. What is but it? Intel is, is a BTD is the name of the. Yeah, pretty. I think so. Yes, VTD. I've always had this crazy idea that I could have like one physical machine that sits in my basement and then have like four video cards and then a KVM switch so I could KVM through my different computers, but they're all physically one machine. I don't know how realistic that is, but I dream of it. Four, maybe not. Two, definitely, possibly three. Four might be a little bit over the top. Mm. Don't push your luck, Noah. (laughs) <laughs> well, I just, it's, you know, separation is so nice. Like even things for different tasks, the amount of times that I have thanked myself for having a separate video production computer than everything else, it's not because video production is so like, it's not like I can multitask doing video production, either I'm editing video or I'm not. But the mere fact that it's on a separate machine means that I can slide my chair over, get a little bit of work done. And if I have to do something else, I go to a different machine to do it. Not only am I not interrupting my workflow, but I don't wind up with extra junk on my machine. Like I don't wind up with uh, Thunderbird with misconfigured email accounts because the password changed, but I hadn't opened it in a year or so that, you know, it just didn't work or something like that. And I don't wind up with, you know, weird files and, and, and my huge long list of Firefox bookmarks on my video editing machine. All I have is resources for editing videos. And as we know, in your life, everything changes pretty much all the time. So it's, yes. it's probably essential to have some, a little firewall where you can say, this is, this is the purpose and it stays yeah. that way. And I, I change it only when needed. Wes, I call it an ADD firewall. Ah, perfect. It, it, it's a firewall for my ADD, and it <laughs> helps me separate things out into separate machines. And, no, and no, you have a toy machine over there. Don't install that package here. <laughs> That's the one with the shiny stuff on it. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I, that, so that has been where, where I have found that's been hugely helpful to be able to compartmentalize stuff. And if I could, the, the problem is it's very, very expensive to buy different machines to do multiple different things. Yeah, even more if the number of computers you have, that's... Um... Right. Brings right. a tear to yeah. my eye. Yeah. Well, there you know, you see, you need a KVM switch with a um, keyboard and mouse shut off. So it limits the uh, access to that machine. Well, if I had, so if I, I could pass through, so the KVM switch will give me four USB connectors, right? And four video connectors. And so I could plug all four video, I could plug all four, um, kvm connectors into the the computer and i'm hoping there would be a way that i could tell it this usb plug is only passed through to this computer and this one is only passed to this computer and i i don't know i I might end up having to use separate uh like little pci you know cards with a separate usb controller huh 
to be able to get that to work. Oh, you know what? I just saw somebody on YouTube that did this. Um, was it Logitech has what the heck they call it? It's the mouse that has like multiple um, Bluetooth dongles and a switch on the bottom of the mouse. Like oh, you can neat. go back and forth. Oh, that is awesome. And like, you know, it's intended to be able, you, know, you can plug, um, you can um, pair with two different computers, but if you plug the USB dongle into the same computer and then um, pair the USB port that the dongle's plugged into your KVM, then, you know, you've got the same mouse that's paired with two different machines on the same physical host. It's like a hardware synergy. <laughs> you know what's funny? You took the words right out of my mouth. Those are my words now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I was. That's right about what I was going to say. Was it's like what I look for with synergy, and uh, except not in synergy. Um, well, that'll be really cool. I will have to keep an eye on that. It's something that uh, it's something that I really think I could put into practice. Again, it's I'm going to run up against that problem of since I have a working solution. Exactly. I'm going to have I'm going to have to pry myself away. Anything else anyone wants to add into the uh, post show before we get out of here? Well, the reason I brought up the hardware thing is because it, it creates a potential discussion topic of uh, when Linux adoption is something that's really hard to do right now, you know, for a, you know, forever, basically, because of trying to convince them about these certain applications, blah, blah, Do you think it would be better uh, and that Linux would be more uh, likely to, to kind of take over the world? If, um, you know, there was prepackaged applications that you could just run in, like, instead of having to see, oh, does it support it? doesn't matter. Your virtual machine has an app. We have an, instead of a Rhine wrapper, we have a virtual machine wrapper. And all you do is install this, and there hmm. you go. You, you know, I've, I've done that on a, on a basic scale for, for my parents before, where I, where I, I had a, a Windows application listening um, for a file at startup, and I, I would have a shortcut on the Linux desktop for like, you know, when my when my mom, for instance, would need to to use Microsoft Office for a certain document, you know, once in a while, uh, that that she could pass it, open it up just like a regular application. It would open the virtual machine. It would the virtual machine would know to open open Word. So, so I think there there's something there. Um, Long term solution, maybe not, but it but it could be a really good you know uh, a wrapper for someone who wants to transition but still requires a certain amount of Windows specific. You know, and I keep coming back to, I, just, I really hope I'm not wrong on this, but I'm really hoping that as we move forward, that web-centric applications begin to take more dominance. And as that happens, the need for a compatibility layer just kind of drops. I mean, hopefully. Yeah, but the web layer can't really work with the hardware that well. Yeah, that's like, true. Something so else to talk about the hardware. You're right. Yeah, so there's, there's certain things like, I don't know, it's kind of like the web apps have like, I use web apps a lot, and they're great in certain cases and they're awful in other cases. Yeah. So but like stuff like WebGL are making that a lot better, but I think that there's, you know, I don't want web apps to become the norm. I would yeah. like them to become a novelty that it's yep. a, a very highly used novelty. Yep. Yep. I'm right there with you, Rotten Corpse. I really am. Um, I, I have seen, uh, I've seen web apps. I, I've always looked at them as a necessary evil. I would prefer that my software run locally, but if my, if I have my choice between running the software on Linux in a web browser or running uh, Windows software only, if I have to pick between those two, I'll take the web software every time. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Windows users migrate to uh, web software. Linux will keep our awesome desktop applications. Yeah, exactly. It, see, now we're on the money. We can agree on that.